Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Today, my first guest is Angela Roos Fair. She is a long-term care worker. She works at a long-term care home in Abbotsford. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Angela. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. You've received the COVID vaccine, right? I have. I had it uh, two days ago. All right. How did it go? It was great. It's very well organized, and they set up a time for you so that there's no, you know, um, grouping of people. And you go in, it's really just like getting the flu shot. Right. So it felt pretty much exactly like getting getting the flu, flu vaccine? Absolutely like that. And even your arm is just a little bit tender the next day, but really that's the only thing. Okay. Any reaction to it at all? No, just the, just a little bit in the arm, and that was it. I feel great. Okay, how do you feel about receiving this vaccine? One of the first in British Columbia to get it. Um, I feel good about it. I, I want to be a good example, and there's many people on our campus that are lining up to get it. We're not afraid in healthcare. We've been getting the flu shot for, you know, 25 years, so this is just mm. another one. Okay, does it make you feel safer? It does. Yeah. I feel good. <laughs> What are what are your uh, coworkers saying, and also the uh, the seniors that you care for there? What do they, what do they think about the whole thing? Well, uh, the people that I work with, they look to you and they they want to ask questions. How are you feeling? Right. And you know, is it uh, yeah? Is it what they think it is? Is there any reactions? And there isn't. So there's a sense of calm, and mm. then people are getting in line to get it. Right. Are some of your coworkers any of them kind of hesitant or nervous about it? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, again, it's just that waiting and looking at you to see, are you feeling okay? Is it all right? right. I think Canada has a, a good history of, you know, providing good vaccines for us. Yeah. So I trust the process. Right. Do you think the, uh, the confidence in it will, will grow as we go forward? I mean, there's so much excitement and optimism around this vaccine, especially with the 95% effectiveness rate, which is just awesome. And as we see more people like yourself, Getting the, rolling up your sleeve, getting the vaccine, and seeing there's, there's been no negative reaction so far, do you think more people will say, okay, I'm ready to do this, let's go? Absolutely. People yeah. are waiting in line, but they just want to see, you know, you go first. Yeah, you go first, right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. how about, this? How about the, uh, the residents in care homes? Are they anxious to get the shot too? I think that they would be. Yeah. Uh, we certainly, as soon as you get it, then you feel the sense of, I don't know, there's a freedom with it all of a sudden. I started thinking, oh, after the second shot, I'll be able to see my parents again, perhaps, or my grandchildren. That freedom comes with it. Right, okay. I'm starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel. Angela, Absolutely. thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming thank on and sharing too. your story. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. And thank you for the good work that you're doing. The people <laughs> on the front lines here are the heroes here in this fight against uh, the virus, and especially for the people who are caring for BC seniors. So that's Angela Roos Fair. She's a long-term care worker in Abbotsford. She received the COVID-19 vaccine two days ago. Let's check in now with Terry Lake. He's the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. They represent long-term care homes in, in British Columbia. Terry, it's nice to have you back. Thanks for having me, Mike. 
Okay, it's great to hear from these frontline workers. We've, with the last couple of days, we've heard from care home staff getting the vaccine. What's it, what it was like for them, what their coworkers are saying, what residents are saying in our long-term care homes about the vaccine. What are you hearing uh, from your people and from the residents of care homes about the vaccine rollout so far? Well, uh, I think generally people are uh, relieved, obviously, that it's finally happening. Um, there are some who feel that residents should be vaccinated first or at least at the same time as, uh, as those that are caring for them, uh, because obviously the residents are the most vulnerable. But, you know, these are difficult decisions when you have a scarce amount of the vaccine and you have logistical challenges. You know, you have to devise the optimum uh, balance of, uh, of, of, of giving that vaccine. And that may mean, you know, uh, just doing workers for now. Uh, right. You can get more people through, and then when you get the Moderna vaccine, logistics are a little bit easier, uh, then you can take it to residents. So that that may be the, the one thing I'm hearing. There is, uh, as Angela said, some concern, I think, among people. You know, this is a new vaccine. Uh, generally, I think people trust the process, as Angela does, and it just brought a smile to my face hearing her say that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we do have to communicate well with, with people to assure them that this is safe, that it's effective. Um, Safe Care BC, which is the Health and Safety Association uh, for Long-Term Care, will be releasing a, a study tomorrow, a, a, a poll of uh, workers to sort of gauge attitudes. So it'll be interesting uh, to see what they reveal in that uh, in that study. Yeah, it is. I think it's key that uh, people, I think it may be understandable that some people are nervous or hesitant uh, about it. Uh, let me play this for you, Terry, get your thoughts. This is Bonnie Hammersteiner. She is a long-term care aide. She works in a long-term care home in uh, in Surrey, and she was on the show yesterday, and we were talking about workers receiving this vaccine, and she talked about some of the nervousness that her coworkers are feeling about it, and here's what she said. There is. Um, I mean, there is, you know, we, there is a few that are hesitant because they're saying, well, what about the after effects or what about this mm-hmm. or what about that? And along with anything else in this world, I mean, there's something that comes with something in, in it at all. I mean, you take Advil, there's effects from that. You take Tylenol, it takes effects for that. Um, yes, we have to look at our own health. And I mean, I know no one wants to see, you know, wants to be, um, you know, on death's door or anything like that. But, I mean, if, if, if this gives us a chance to fight this and protect ourselves, our family and our residents, um, our coworkers, our doctors, our other nurses, everybody, you know what, we should be going for it and getting it. Okay, it's one of Bonnie Hammersteiner, one of the many long-term care uh, workers who are receiving the vaccine this week. My guest is Terry Lake from the BC Care Providers Association. You mentioned, Terry, that... You know, long-term care residents should be obviously a priority to receive the vaccine. Can you explain briefly? A lot of people know know the the mechanics behind this, but why are why are staff in care homes getting the vaccine first while the residents are waiting? Well, the the major way, in fact, practically the only way the virus has uh, entered long-term care is through staff. Despite you know uh, the screening process, which you know we we don't think has been adequate without rapid testing. But that's the way it's getting in. So if you vaccinate the staff, you are uh, protecting the residents as well. Now, you don't protect them quite as quickly, uh, but you can vaccinate more staff in a shorter period of time. And when you only have a limited amount of uh, vaccine and the logistics of keeping it frozen and and the way you handle it are are very strict, uh, then it, it, it makes a lot of sense to do the workers first and then move out once you get the um, the more transportable vaccine. 
Right, yeah, because the Pfizer vaccine, which is the only one we have right now, that's the one that has to be kept in the super deep freeze of like minus 75 degrees Celsius. So the staff, the care home workers who are receiving this vaccine, they are going off-site to receive. They're going to a special location to receive the vaccine first. The Moderna vaccine can be stored at lower temperatures just in a regular fridge or freezer. So when that when we get that one, that do you expect that the Moderna vaccine will be the one that's brought actually brought to seniors in care homes? I, I expect that will be yeah. the major one. Now we may get you know a lot more comfortable uh, handling the Pfizer vaccine and and in some cases be able to transport it as well. But I think we're relying or the government is relying on the Moderna vaccine as the one that will be taken to residential care homes. Right. So uh, you know it, it's coming, and I you know I think it is optimistically. <laughs> Uh, by the middle of February or you know, around Family Day, which would be really nice, uh, you know, we might have everyone in long-term care, workers and residents, uh, fully vaccinated. That would be right. fantastic. Right. What about the, uh, there is some concern around the effectiveness of the vaccine. It's, we're told it's 95% effective, which is fantastic, but we're still unclear, at least from what, what I've read from the experts, what the experts have told me, is that we still don't know for sure that after you receive the vaccine, is it still possible that you can be contagious with the virus? Like you, you may be vaccinated, but if you get the virus, could you still potentially pass it on? You might not get sick yourself with the vaccine, but could you potentially still be contagious and pass it on to someone else? What is your understanding on that? Well, uh, certainly not an expert in this area by any stretch, but from what I understand, Mike, you know, when you build up immunity, uh, antibodies uh, to a virus, you're going to prevent it from replicating to the point where you're highly transmissible. So, you know, even if you were uh, carrying a a very, very small viral load, the chance of you transmitting that to others, I think, would be would be pretty, pretty minimal. But, you know, these are things that we will learn with time and uh, it'll be heavily studied. So uh, with the new vaccine, we expect there will be some unknowns. But uh, with this one so far, you know, the trials have been excellent and um, you know, I, I hope and uh, really expect that there'll be very, very few problems. My guest is Terry Lake. He's the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Let's talk about the rental market in Metro Vancouver. New figures out on average median rents across Canada. This is not good news for British Columbia and especially for Metro Vancouver. Half the cities. In the most expensive places to rent across the whole country, half of the most expensive cities are in BC. Right at the top, the ignominious number one position, of course, is the city of Vancouver. One thousand nine hundred and fifty bucks for a one bedroom is the median price in Vancouver. That is the most expensive in Canada. That's according to a survey just conducted by Padmapper. Dot CA, the most expensive in the country for a one-bedroom, surpassing now Toronto. So it used to be Toronto was number one. Vancouver has now taken over that position. Vancouver, the most expensive for a one-bedroom. Then you just go down the list. Number Toronto is number two, 1900 bucks for a one-bedroom. Number three is Burnaby, 1670 And then right behind them, Victoria, and then Kelowna. I think we got four out of the top five across Canada for the most expensive rents. 
Meanwhile, now here's the kind of the, I guess, a silver lining or the good news. Rents have dipped a bit this year, still sky high compared to the rest of the country, but they have gone down a little bit. But another new report suggests, hang on a sec, rents could go up in the new year. Research from rentals.ca predicting rents could start creeping back up by the spring or early summer of 2021. Okay, let's talk about all this now with my guest, Mazdak Garabnavez, a spokesperson for the Vancouver Tenants Union. Uh, pleased to welcome back. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you, Mike? Mazdak, thanks a lot for coming on. Really appreciate it. When you hear these numbers, the highest in, in Canada for a one-bedroom, also Vancouver listed as the highest, most expensive rents for a two-bedroom suite in the country, I'm sure that does not surprise you. No, I think it's not surprising, and it's because we're not doing anything about it. So anytime we're talking about these continuously high rents, there's two things to keep in mind. The first one is that there's a huge lack of affordable supply. So the market likes to build basically for the top end of incomes to maximize profits. And in the city of Vancouver, um, half of all renter households make less than $50,000 per year. And that was pre-COVID. So now they make even less. Um, so the vacancy rate for units that are affordable to these people is less than 1%, but the vacancy rate for luxury rentals is, uh, you know, over 8% if, if the rent is $3,500 or more. Um, the second thing to keep in mind is that the evictions also cause this. So because there's a lack of real rent control, that means there's a financial incentive to evict people and then jack up the rents on the most affordable units in the city. And that's sort of on hyperdrive now with, with large corporations buying up entire rental uh, buildings, um, whether it's for demo evictions or rent evictions or getting rid of uh, low-income uh, long-term tenants that have been unable to pay rent during the uh, pandemic. So, right. um, you know, BC's been in this position before, and, and we need to take solutions. Right. Okay, so the current situation right now, isn't there a rent freeze in the province right now? There is. That's right. So um, you would think that the rate, the rents would not be rising if it's zero percent. But because there's uh, there's a lack of rent control in between tenancies, it means yeah. when people move or uh, when they get evicted, um, then landlords are able to sort of jack up the rent right. to whatever amount. Right. Yeah. Because once the tenant, so you cannot, you cannot increase the rent for your existing tenant, but if you have a new tenant in there, it's a reset, right? You can charge whatever you want at that point. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And actually you could argue that, you know, with a measure taken, like saying, you know, 0% rent increases, that might get some landlords start thinking, maybe I should get rid of my person um, and bring, bring someone new. Right. Okay. What about the potential for rents to increase in 2021? This new survey just out from this website, padmapper.ca, says that we've seen some softening of rents actually in the city of Vancouver this year, large, of course, due to the pandemic. But with the new year, the vaccine on the way for the pandemic, hopefully we get on the other side of this thing. Is, is there fear or concern that rents rise in 2021? Yeah, I think there is. And look, whenever we hear these headlines of rents are dipping, um, I think it's really only slightly helpful for those who are able to afford the most expensive rentals. Um, you know, the majority of renters are just facing a reality that doesn't match those headlines. And to put it into perspective, you know, when entire sectors of the economy were shutting, shutting down this year, 
Um, we did a, a survey with our membership and we surveyed 400 renters. Um, and really, they were worried about, you know, the loss of their incomes and the loss of the protections from evictions. So these are the things that are, to- that are top of mind for folks, um, not like a sort of unremarkable drop uh, at the top of the rental market that slightly brings the average down. Okay, certainly very expensive to rent a place in, in Vancouver and a lot of other cities across Metro. That, that I think that's for sure. What about the vacancy rate out there for people who are looking for a place to rent? I mean, has the vacancy rate gone up? Well, I mean, this is this is sort of the thing, uh, too, Mike. You know, uh, a lot of times folks talk about supply, but they're not right. talking about the kind of supply that's needed. So what what is really needed is affordable supply. And the market is just not going to build that. Um, and the other thing to mention to you, actually, is um, according to a report last year from the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, there was uh, over 11,000 condo units that were transformed into long-term rentals uh, in Metro Vancouver because of a vacancy tax um, that kind of came in. So there was a huge uh, increase in supply in, in the forms of these condos coming onto the market, but there was really no, ch- no significant change in terms of the, the rents um, or the vacancy mm-hmm. rates. And so, so when we talk about supply, it's that government needs to build non-market, publicly-owned rental stock that is actually you know, cheap rents um, that uh, folks can rent from and not rely on the market. Okay, speaking to Mazdaq Garib Navas from the Vancouver Tenants Union, there's always this is always kind of a two-sided coin. Whenever we talk about this, there's the plight faced by tenants, and certainly paying two thousand bucks a month for a one-bedroom is is pretty tough. It's even more expensive for a two-bedroom. Imagine a imagine a family uh, trying to get by and find trying to find a two-bedroom apartment. That can be really tough. But what about landlords? Because you know what, we're going to open the phone lines here, and I know we're going to hear from landlords, Mazdaq, and they're going to say, look. What about what about us? Because the government has frozen uh, the rent hikes in the province, and but they haven't frozen our input costs. Our costs continue to go up for insurance, utilities, you name it, repairs. That's going up, but we can't increase the rent. So at some point, something's got to give. And I've heard from landlords who've just told me that they're throwing their hands up and just saying, forget it, I'm out of here. I don't want to be in this business anymore. But your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to really differentiate about who we're talking about. There are legitimately uh, folks that are sort of having trouble out there, folks who uh, are in their primary residence and they're renting out the basement suite to help with the mortgage. You know, these folks need help as well. And during the pandemic, we were actually vocal about that. We were saying that, you know, we need to be canceling rents and mortgage payments um, throughout the pandemic. And that's not a direction that the government uh, went with. But we should also put into perspective that the vast majority of landlords are actually large corporations or wealthy individuals with multiple properties. And so, you know, if we're going to get into a position of arguing who needs help during a crisis, it's the most vulnerable. It is not the profit margins of folks who have been profiting. Um, because we're in a time of pandemic, and the the economic damage should should uh, not fall on the on the well, backs of tenants. Oh, okay, but if you are just sort of a a mom and pop operation running, maybe you have a single basement suite in your home. I, I guess that's one thing. But 
if you're someone like in the latter category that you described, if you're someone who owns a multiple uh, rental facilities, aren't, aren't isn't the math the same though across the board? I mean, if you're if you're not allowed to raise the rent, if that's frozen, but your input cost, your expenses are not frozen, you're getting squeezed no matter how big you are, aren't you? I mean, like if if your costs are going up but your your income is not, you're getting squeezed in the middle. No matter how big you are, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it is the fact that the the profit is certainly being squeezed, and if that puts oh. folks into a position where they think that um, they would want to, for example, sell off the an entire rental building, then I think the government needs to step in. It needs to purchase those kinds of buildings. But it is not a kind of situation where we're gonna kind of make a comparison between saying it's two sides of the same coin because at the end of the day, those folks own uh, millions of dollars in assets that, that they can sell off. Okay. Is the government putting money into housing and, and rental stock? I mean, we hear this government bragging all the time about historic investments in housing. So is it not happening? So, I mean, I think there was some new precedent being set that was encouraging um, that we saw, for example, the uh, the provincial government buying up, you know, hotels and other types of buildings and, and turning them into, um, uh, you know, non-market shelters and that sort of thing. Um, that's sort of the, the right way to go, but they need to be act, be acting more quickly um, right. and in a, in a grander way. You know, this isn't just about pr- uh, protecting um, folks at, at the very bottom if if we're going to deal with this uh, problem of, of very high rents. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much. All right. It's always great to have you here. This Mazdaq Garib Naves. He is a spokesperson with the Vancouver Tenants Union uh, talking about the rents in the city of Vancouver, highest in Canada now. Let's talk about cheating at colleges and universities now during the COVID-19 pandemic. It appears to be soaring. So many students learning at home, doing exams on home, uh, exams on at home online. It just opens up a whole new world of cheating opportunities. We're seeing this in British Columbia just over three weeks ago. UBC said they were looking into allegations of widespread cheating on a first year math exam over a hundred cases of possible cheating in that instance now another ubc cheating report this week uh, looking into allegations of cheating on a chemistry exam at the ubc campus in the okanagan another ubc cheating scandal in the works here okay let's talk about this now with my guest sarah eaton from the university of calgary she's one of canada's top experts in academic integrity and i'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show sarah thanks for coming on again Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, this is just so fascinating because it seems like cheating has kind of gone high tech, and especially with the pandemic on, it just seems like there's more opportunities to cheat. Is is there any sort of solid information or indications that this is going up? It just seems like it's going up, right? Yeah, well, you know, Mike, every, every day I read these articles from across Canada, across the United States, Australia, other countries that say the same thing, that cheating rate are going up, that cheating is the other pandemic that's happening right now wow. underneath our noses. When I hear these news stories about, oh, it's happening at UBC, it's not just happening at UBC, it's happening, it's happening everywhere. 
How big is it, do you think? Is it possible to put a number on it? Like, this is actually in some ways kind of big money. Like, there's a lot of these uh, cheating cheating online services where you can, you know, po- people are posting exam answers. You can hire people to write a, custom essays for you. It's like big money. Yeah, it's called the contract cheating industry, right? I mean, it started wow. back with term paper mills a few decades ago. This is now, it's more than a billion dollars a year. I think wow. that's actually a low estimate. I mean, these companies are out there. Their, uh, and their whole business is based around helping students cheat, and it's big business. Okay, it's interesting that it's almost like there's an, like an arms race going on between the academic institutions, the colleges and the universities that are trying to stop the cheating, and the cheaters who are finding new inventive high-tech ways to get around, get around the rules. Can we talk a little bit about some of these, these rules that are brought in for taking an exam, for example? Like I've been reading about... Uh, some of the software that's available now for online exams. So if, let's say, a kid is taking an exam from their home and, and there's ways that the professor can make sure it's the actual student that's taking the exam, you can use like a webcam or something to make sure the student is not cheating. But that, it has problems too, right? This is called proctoring, proctoring software, yeah. is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it's called online proctoring or remote proctoring. It's basically a stand-in, right, for the teacher that walks around the exam hall or the classroom. Um, you know, it's outsourcing this to, to a computer program now. Right. And uh, it, there's a lot of problems with it. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that, because I read a really interesting article in the Globe and Mail in which you were quoted. And, for example, uh, there is some software that has, like, facial recognition software, right? So the student would look in the camera, and the camera is supposed to be able to tell if it's, the you know, it's not someone who's, someone who's like, you know, a ringer who's brought in to take the test for you, right? But there's problems with that, especially for uh, racialized students, yeah, there's a lot of problems with these computer programs, right? There's algorithms behind it. The algorithms favor uh, individuals with lighter skin tones. So wow. basically, the darker a person's skin tone, the less likely the software can identify that there's even a human taking the exam. It's really, it's really discriminatory to the point that I think that there's probably some human rights violations going on with the use of this stuff that hasn't been fully explored. There have been legal cases against the software in the United States I don't think we've had any in Canada yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's coming. It's, it is really, really discriminatory in terms of, uh, you know, um, profiling uh, students of color. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. What about privacy concerns, too? Because I know some of these uh, software systems have got using webcams, so they're taking a picture of the student while they're doing a, a remote exam online. Maybe you could have a student in, in their bedroom, for example, and now they're, they're being photographed in a, in a bedroom. Is, are there any privacy concerns there? So many privacy concerns. Really invasive. You're right. I, I mean, it's like, having, um, it's like having a camera on you all the time while you're writing your exam. I've heard of cases where, you know, either the, the school sets things up, says you must be on camera the whole time, right? So something happens and the student, you know, uh, has an anxiety attack. I've, hear, I've heard cases of students having to throw up in a waste paper bin on camera because they're not allowed to go and throw up in the toilet. It's, uh, you know, again, sort of human rights violations, privacy, you've got surveillance in people's homes, in people's bedrooms, and we don't know uh, who's watching them. That's, that's what part of what makes it so creepy. There's oh sometimes goodness. a human on the other, other end in some other country that can see the student, but the student can't see them. It's Big Brother all over the place. Right. Now, the the rationale behind systems like that are to keep an eye on the student to, to what? To make sure they're not looking at a cheat sheet or they're not opening up 
you know, books, if it's a closed book exam that they're not looking at the book? Is that is that why they would have a, a camera surveillance going on there? Yeah, I mean, the idea is that it replaces that teacher, right, who would walk around in the classroom and make sure students aren't looking at cheat notes or something like that. But there's right. there's also a lot of websites around how students can hack these systems. Um, so they're not foolproof. The marketing that some of these companies present is very slick. They present it as a great solution when there's a lot of ways to hack it if a student's smart enough to do so. So it doesn't actually prevent a lot of cheating. Okay, my guest is Sarah Eaton from the University of Calgary, and we're talking about the rise of academic cheating here during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, What about some of these other sort of high-tech ways of cheating? Like I've read about websites where people are trading answers to an exam. So it looks like you're doing a math exam or a chemistry exam, like these examples we've seen in UBC. Is it a problem where uh, you might have people taking the same exam at the same time, but maybe you have students would be opening up a chat program or posting answers on a on another a website that people can check while they're taking the exam. Is that happening? It's happening all over the place, right? And I think yeah. part of the problem with this is we're taking what's normal online behavior. It's normal for us to um, ask a search engine what the answer to a question is. It's normal for us to share in online environments. We share we share memes. We share social media posts. We share information, recipes, photos, you name it. Suddenly, we put students into an exam and say, ah, 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 no sharing. But we've right. taken normal online behavior and basically criminalized it. Okay, is there a way to stop that or to catch that type of cheating? Because I know there's been software developed where, let's say, a, a student is taking an exam. You might use a proprietary software system that, that locks you out from opening up any other kind of browser windows on your computer. So you can't, you can't access other websites while you're taking the exam, right? Except, except that I can look up the answers on my phone oh. or on my laptop that I have yeah. on the side. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's lots of ways around it. I think, honestly, Mike, I think one of the problems is we know that exam cheating has been around since the 6th century, since exams were invented. <laughs> uh, and my question is, why are we still assessing students in the same way they did in the 6th century? I mean, haven't we advanced past that? <laughs> okay, is there a better way then? I think there's lots of better ways, and part of the yeah. challenge for people like me, professors, teachers, educators, is figuring out how to do that. Honestly, I think if we're asking que- students questions to start with what, what do you know, they can go to the Internet and answer that question. What I'm interested in when I work with my students is how do you know? How do you know what you know? Show me. Show me what you know. Those kinds of exams, those kinds of as- assessments, assignments are harder to design, but way more meaningful for the students. And I get a better sense of where are the gaps in their knowledge and how can I help them improve. Right. Okay, so for students who are involved, though, in hardcore cheating, uh, which we know is going on, do you think that colleges and universities in Canada are being tough enough on that? Like, are the academic penalties strict enough? Do we have uniform rules across Canada around this stuff? Or does it, does it kind of vary from university to university or college to college? Yeah, it totally varies from one one university to another. I mean, I've researched this. I've looked at plagiarism definitions across universities, across candidates. There's no consistency from one school to the next, and every school has their own policies, their own rules, their own sanctions. Um, and, and this lack of consistency is, is a big problem. It is connected to quality assurance because we want to know that our students, when they leave our schools, that they've earned the credentials that they signed up for. I think it's really important for the quality assurance bodies to start getting involved in these conversations. 
Yeah. And how about the penalties? Do you think the penalties are severe enough? Like in, in one case that we've seen at UBC here in this recent uh, allegations of cheating on a, on a first-year math exam, we saw a post from some students were posting about this on social media saying that, that the professor was threatening to recommend that everyone caught cheating be expelled from uh, from UBC, which is pretty severe. And I, I don't think an individual professor has that power. Like, it typically goes up the chain to, what, an, an academic integrity panel or something? Like, how do how do most institutions handle allegations of cheating? And, and who decides what the penalty is? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's usually not yeah. the individual professor. My guess is that that individual was trying to, you know, uh, put, put a bit of fear into students and get them to smarten up a bit. It's usually done by an administrator or a panel. It depends on the school. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that administrators often are privy to a little uh, extra information. So, you know, in uh, in my school, for example, I can't look up a student's history. I'm not I'm not privy to that information, but an administrator could, and they could say, well, you know, it's a student's first offense, their first year, they're getting the hang of things. Uh, we'll give them a warning this time. But then they can also look mm. and say, look, this is the student's seventh or eighth offense. There's no mercy at this point. Right. So for a repeat offender, I mean, what's the ultimate penalty? You get expelled. Um, it depends, I think, on the yeah. severity of the uh, of the situation and the yeah. number of times the student's been through it. Have they had chances to, you know, remediate their behavior? Those kinds of things. Most schools will have a, what they call escalating discipline. So you fail the assignment, you fail the course, you get kicked out of your program, you get kicked out of the faculty, you get kicked out of the school. Those, and it, but it's usually not we expel them on the first offense. Uh, right. But having said that, there may be cases of it. Right, right. And, but overall, though, do you think most institutions are, are taking this seriously enough? Are they being tough enough on it? It's a good question. I think yeah. we can do better. I think we can yeah. educate our students about what we expect of them. And if, you know, say it's not an open book test, uh, then it's not an open book test and we'll enforce it. Let students know there will be consequences before yeah. they take the exam. Also let them know uh, if it is an open book exam and sharing is not okay. They might make an assumption when they start that if they can share outside of their virtual classroom, that they can share inside it. So I think also letting students know what the expectations are is key. And also, um, I mean, looking at our assessments, do we really need to be giving multiple choice tests in the 21st century? What's the point of that? (laughs) Okay, it's always great to have you on here. Thanks for being a guest on the show today. Thanks so much, Mike. All right, thank you. That's Sarah Eaton from the University of Calgary. She's an associate professor and educational leader there. She's one of Canada's leading experts on academic integrity. Really appreciate her time. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm today. Okay, let's talk about the CRA going after people who got CERB money, possibly when they were not eligible. Now some CERB recipients being told, you might have to pay some of this money back now. More than 440,000 Canadians have received letters from the Canada Revenue Agency questioning their eligibility for the CERB, warning them they may have to pay back some of those payments. All right, let's talk about this now with my guest. Do we have Jagmeet Singh? 
Hey there, how's it we going? We do. Oh, good. Oh, good. You're, you're there. That's awesome. I got federal NDP leader Jugmeet Singh on the line. Thank you for calling in. Can you give us an update on th- this this situation? Because it just seems like there's some confusion out there around the eligibility. There's a lot of anxiety from people getting these letters, so they got to pay this money back. What's going on? Right. So first off, what we're hearing, the majority of people getting these letters are people that applied and are self-employed. Now, someone committed fraud. If someone made a fake identity, someone used a fake address. If someone committed fraud, absolutely, they should have to repay. There's no question about that. But the problem is a lot of the people we're hearing from, I heard from a woman named Valerie. She is a performing artist. She uh, earned money as an artist and teaches singing. And she applied because she had the criteria of making $5,000. Now, after the fact, CRA is saying, oh, you know what? Actually, that was supposed to be net revenue. She's like, when she applied, there was no indication of net or gross revenue. The finance minister just said, if you've got more than $5,000 in total uh, of yeah. income earned, then you apply, then you, you qualify. So what the Liberal government is doing right now is going after self-employed workers who are exactly who we wanted to help. These are the workers that lost their jobs, lost income because of the pandemic. Who the government should go after are the 66 businesses that we know received a billion dollar in public money, but then turned around and paid out $5 billion in dividends to their shareholders. Those are people, those are companies that made profit claiming that they had lost revenue and that's why they needed help. Well, that's who the Liberal government should go after, not these self-employed workers who did nothing wrong. They applied as they were told to and got the help that they deserved. Okay, just so we're clear. So the rules were to qualify for the CERB, an individual you had to have made. It was based on your income in 2019. So if you made, you had to make at least $5,000 in 2019. And then if if you'd lost income because of the CERB or because of the pandemic, then you'd qualify for the CERB. So you're saying that some people applied... Uh, because they felt they they had had gross income of $5,000 or more, but then the government told them later, well, actually, no, it's net income. So you'd have to, you know, so so some people thought they were eligible, but they really weren't? No, no. So what happened is it's very yeah. close to that. So uh, okay. Valerie, I'll give you Valerie's example. She's yeah. an artist, uh, and she has different expenses that she's allowed to write off. Her accountant and the CRA give her the right to write off expenses as she should so she's a musician she uh, has instruments uh, time in the recording studio so she had a, a revenue of twenty thousand dollars in the previous year in 2019 and uh, based on her expenses she had an expensive year of touring and, and she incurred a lot of costs so her costs were about uh, seventeen thousand so she was left with uh, an, a revenue of about three thousand dollars but she's right. like i earned twenty thousand dollars i i earned twenty thousand um, it was an expensive year. She had to do a lot of touring. But she's like, if I had known that uh, I couldn't, I could have just not written off. I would have swallowed the cost of about $2,000 of those expenses that I was allowed to write <laughs> off and I would have qualified. So yeah. she's like, well, how does that make any sense? The whole goal is, as an artist, I have no gigs now. There's no gigs going on. There's no opportunity for me to work. Uh, she was a music teacher as well. No opportunity for music uh, lessons because people aren't coming together. Uh, and she's in she's in Quebec. So these are people that are, are bona fide people that worked the year before. And really right, the whole right. goal is if you worked the year before, you deserve to get help. Well, she worked. She had a lot of revenue. But um, now they're saying that after the fact, she's like, I applied, even had my accountant look at it. She's like, yeah, you're fine. You're, you're absolutely covered. You've earned enough income to qualify. 
Now they're saying it's about net revenue. Net, well, right. that means yeah, uh, sub- subtracting her, her costs. Well, she's right. Like, that was never told to me. That was never told to anyone. In fact, well, I mean, didn't but but didn't the government didn't the government? I mean, I'll agree with you. I think the government bungled this. They botched it in the rollout. But didn't the government uh, update the website later and put made it clear on the website later that it was net income was the was the threshold? Well, they never put it on the actual landing page. What they did is months later they put it on a question and answer page. And so, really, we have to look at what the goal is here. You've yeah. got people that worked the year before that genuinely worked that are genuine folks that that had gotten income, and they no longer could work. You know, an artist who is a performing artist obviously cannot earn income doing gigs because there's no venues that allow people to come together. So she's right. a genuine person that needed help. But what about those 66 companies that I listed? They yeah. paid out at five billion dollars in dividends. Clearly, they're profitable. You only pay out dividends when you're profitable. Those are the companies that the Liberal government should go after and say, hey, turns out you're profitable, so you took about a billion dollars of help, well, we're going to ask for you to repay it. That's who this Liberal government, that's who Justin Trudeau should go after, not a, not a self-employed artist who earned money, but over a technicality, they're saying they don't deserve it. Who should be the one paying? A company that paid out $5 billion in, in dividends, that means they were really profitable, they paid out dividends. They yeah. should be the ones that have to repay, not someone like Valerie, who who is an artist who earned enough money to qualify, but now they're saying after the fact, oh, we're going to make you pay back. And she got a check, a uh, letter saying she's got to pay back $12,000 that she doesn't have. Yeah. Interesting issue. We'll see where it goes from here. Thank you for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so okay. much. Okay. All right. That is Jugmeet Singh. He's the federal NDP leader here. Uh, weighing in on the more than 440,000 Canadians who've received these letters uh, from the CRA saying, you got CERB payments, you may not have been eligible, questioning their eligibility now. Let's check in quickly now with Lior Zamfiru, employment lawyer with Zamfiru Law. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Lior, what do you think of this situation? Well, Mike, here's the problem uh, with uh, with these CERB rules is the fact that individuals are asked to make sense of what this all means. And uh, if they think that they got it right, they'll apply, they'll get the benefits. And the government doesn't actually decide, uh, decide who gets it and who doesn't. Well, look at EI, for example. To apply for EI, there are rules. If we told employees, you decide if you qualify, and if you say you qualify, we'll pay it to you, I would guarantee you millions of people would be getting it inappropriately. That's why the government ultimately has to be the one policing who gets it and who doesn't. And when they don't do that, it's going to be very difficult for them to go back and say, well, you did it wrong. You misunderstood what we meant. So yeah. I agree with Mr. <laughs> Sink that the government is going to have to show some leeway in these good faith situations. But, Mike, there's another category of people here that I think the government should give some consideration to, which is where I disagree with Mr. Singh, and that is this. Employers are going to tell you, and if you opened up your lines, you would have hundreds of employers calling you about this, that when the economy started opening up again after the first wave of COVID, the biggest challenge that employers had is getting employees back to work because many employees didn't want to go back to work because they thought, well, we could just stay home and collect the CERB. Yeah, right. Well, these individuals automatically, by refusing to go to work, are disqualified from CERB. They should not be getting it, but mm-hmm. they kept getting it. So I think there's a category there potentially of thousands and thousands and thousands of people that decided to stay home because they thought, well, I could just get money instead of going back to work. So there's that category that the government should give some attention to as to whether or not they have to repay it, but certainly not those people that honestly believed that they were owed the money.
Okay, Lior, thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Okay, an important issue for sure. We're following it closely for you. Lior Samfiro is an employment lawyer with Samfiro Law. Always appreciate his time on the show. Let's talk about the sewage wars that raged for years between the city of Victoria and our neighbors in Washington State. Our friends in Washington pleaded for literally for decades with Victoria, stop flushing your raw, untreated sewage into the ocean. Victoria, for years, pumped its sewage Yes, including untreated human waste directly into the Strait of Juan de Fuca, straight from the toilet into the ocean. Washington State was not happy about it. At one point, they even threatened a tourism boycott. Finally, in the early 90s, under an NDP government, they they promised a sewage treatment plant. Uh, It took a long time. The next liberal government took that on as well to get this thing done. And now, finally... 27 years later, $800 million spent. The sewage treatment system is up and running in Victoria. And a great quote from Jay Inslee, the Washington state governor this week. I was wondering why the water looks so clean uh, near his house on Bainbridge Island. Well, yeah, sewage treatment finally got done in Victoria. Let's talk about this now with my guest. I got Barry Penner on the line, former B.C. Minister of Environment. Hi, Barry. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Also, Matt Morrison is on the line. He's the CEO of the Pacific Northwest Economic Region in Washington State. Matt, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. Thanks, guys, both of you uh, for both of you being here. Barry Penner, let me go to you first. You were the environment minister when what? This thing? Can you can you just bring us back and give us a simple kind of history of this? So you were the environment minister when this thing got approved, or what was your what was your role there? Uh, I was the environment minister, and we decided to instruct the capital regional district that has responsibility for sewage facilities in the Victoria area, that it was time to now get on with sewage treatment. Uh, They had to develop a plan and bring that forward for approval, but that the years of study and delay should be over, and it was time to actually get on with things. That was 2006. Right. And here we are 14 years later, and finally it's happening. But it's been a, a much longer effort than that. It goes back decades where various uh, levels of government and various political parties stalled on the issue. Okay, Matt, how big of a, an issue was this for Washington State? I know people there were not were not happy at all with Victoria pumping raw sewage into the ocean. What did people in Washington think about that? Well, Mike, you, you have it right. I, I think the Victoria sewage has probably been a bigger issue in Washington State and Seattle than it ever was in Victoria or in B.C. Yeah. Uh, we did threatened tourism boycotts. We had a legislator who put a budget proviso that no state dollars could go to any meetings in British Columbia until the sewage treatment was in operation. Uh, You know, at least annually, we had lots of uh, press about this. It was a huge issue down here. And and hooray, hooray today to see (laughs) it finally working. Yeah, finally. We are grateful. Finally, yeah, the sewage treatment plant is up and running, so it's, it's it took a long time. Uh, I remember when this fight was, was raging, Matt, the city of Victoria and the people who supported this system of pumping the sewage in, into the ocean were saying, like, look, at, you know, it, it's, it's a very sort of very cold water out there. It's rapidly moving water. The sewage disperses into the ocean. It's broken down by the very cold temperatures. So it was really not a, not a problem. I mean, was, was that ever a legitimate explanation in your opinion well 
what what from down here when 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 the leader of the Green Party came out <clears throat> against the sewage treatment, <clears throat> we said, you know, what kind of Green Party do they have in Victoria? Who, you know, what kind of a Green Party would be against sewage treatment? And uh, it, it was, you know, flabbergasting to say the least. You know, after all the effort we have tried to make this happen over, as you said, 27 years. Yeah, no, I but think you're right. There were it, so many delays. Yeah, it did seem to be a bigger issue in Washington State than in British Columbia in many ways. Barry Penner, let me go go back to you. You're the environment minister at the time. Why was it so tough to get, to get this done? I think it came down to cost. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's amazing when somebody's trying to avoid paying uh, money, they'll come up with many explanations for why that is. And so we did this dance of the seven veils. You might remember there was a lot of effort spent uh, in the 90s and, and into the 2000s early on to develop the trigger process. Well, you know, if certain standards were exceeded, then we would start planning, but they never quite settled exactly what those triggers were. Um, and so when I became environment minister in 2005, I realized my initial briefings that this was an issue that wasn't going away. We're going to have to confront this as uh, tough as it was going to be financially, it was going to have to be dealt with. And uh, in 2006, two major reports came back. One that the Capital Regional District themselves commissioned. It was known as the CTAC panel, Society for Environmental Toxicology and Chemistry, had a panel of international experts. And I think the CRD was hoping this would buy more time. But the panel found that while you couldn't find, you know, a lot of evidence of significant environmental damage at that time, that going forward, it was not sustainable as the population in Victoria grew. Something yes. was going to have to give and treatment was going to be required. At the same time, the ministry had done our own study. And I remember being briefed by some officials that had very long faces. They thought I was going to be upset at their conclusion, which was not at all shocking, which found that based on the CRD's own monitoring data, the contamination at the two outfalls where the raw sewage was going out into the strait yes. was already exceeding our standards for contaminated sites down at the seabed level. And so it, it would qualify as a contaminated site out in the ocean there. Wow. So I, I wasn't prepared to uh, continue this dance of the seven veils any longer and instructed my staff to put forward a cabinet submission uh, to get uh, green light to proceed with uh, requiring sewage treatment in the Victoria area. Right. What, Matt Morrison, what was the, the key concern for the people in Washington State who were concerned about this uh, sewage uh, outfall? What, what was the, the major concern for people there? Well, certainly the, uh, the, the health and well-being of the Salish Sea was paramount. Yeah. <clears throat> Our orca whales and salmon and every small community along the Strait of Juan de Fuca had to put secondary and tertiary treatment in, <clears throat> regardless of their size. And they see this behemoth across the way just spewing everything into the into the strait. Yeah. And that didn't sit well. No, I'm sure I'm sure it didn't. Barry Penner, would would you say that I don't know, was this like a political tough sell to, to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a on a sewage treatment plant? Like is it come down to like basic kind of retail politics that maybe politicians would prefer to spend that kind of money on a on a bridge or, or, or something that's more visible that they can get some political benefit out of it rather than a, a sewage treatment plant, which is just not as politically ex exciting, I guess. Is that a factor? It, it, yeah, it's not a terribly sexy topic. Um, yeah. 
and and then think about it. Uh, in, in normal times, COVID's maybe not normal, but normal times, governments think of finite amount of spending. Right now, governments are pretending there's no limit on how much could be spent, but the reality is there is a limited amount of taxpayer dollars available. And and so where are you going to spend that money? And the province realized we're going to have to come up with several hundred million dollars towards this project if we're going to do it. So I, I was expecting uh, resistance, and uh, especially given decades of delay and denial that was taking place in the Victoria area about sewage treatment. Uh, but uh, Gordon Campbell and the rest of the cabinet were actually uh, very enthusiastic when we brought forward the submission. I, I'm not going to talk about too much what happens in cabinet, but uh, suffice to say, uh, the same day that uh, the submission went forward uh, and I presented it was the same day I announced that we were requiring Greater Victoria to start planning uh, to treat their sewage. Okay, and the day's finally here. The sewage treatment plant's finally up and running in, in British Columbia, $800 million later. We just, we just got a minute left here, Matt. What would you say has been the, the reaction among our friends in Washington State to this, uh, this sewage plant finally up and running in Victoria? Hey, it's late, but it's great. We're, we're thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, uh, great Mike, work, everybody, Mike. for holding to the fire. Yeah, Mike, I think thanks. Barry, go ahead. Have to go to acknowledgement that uh, Peter Fassbender and Mary Pollock had to overcome late resistance from within the CRD and the city of Esquimalt for the location at uh, McLaughlin Point. Yeah, there was a the, big fight about the location of the plant. Yes, and and the provincial government with Christy Clark, of course, was premier, but Peter Fassbender, especially uh, with support from Mary Pollock, were able to kind of do a workaround. And uh, I think some very tough and frank discussions happened behind closed doors. Yeah. And eventually the local governments fell into line and the approval went ahead to put that, local, that site, do you give, uh, the facility at the site. Barry, do you give the NDP some credit too? I do when it came to the by-election in 2012. <laughs> and that's what uh, Matt Morrison's referring to. The Green Party at the time uh, thought they could pick up that seat in the federal by-election and came out against the proposed sewage plan. Yeah. They said it should be better, it could be different, whatever, you know, the... That old saying, the don't let the uh, desire for the perfect be the enemy of the very good. And so people were finding reasons to stall and delay. And even the Green Party in that federal by-election were opposed to the sewer plant wow. and the project. And so yeah. was the federal liberal candidate. Wow. Uh, but the NDP candidate, Murray Rankin, my former law professor at UVic, uh, he came out and was in favor okay. of sewer treatment. And he got elected in that by-election. Okay, well, it finally got done. It took a lot, a long time. I think it was the right thing to do. Thank you, gentlemen, for both of you being on the show here today to talk about it. That's Barry Penner, the former BC Finance Minister. Matt Morrison, the CEO of the Pacific Northwest Economic Region. They are based in Washington State.